churches and many pastors are doing topical series during this time to speak to what's going on in our world. And I think it's amazing because we've been tracking through the book of Mark for many, many weeks now. And to me, it's amazing how relevant and timely the passages that we would normally have been dealing with are to our current situation. And so today, as I did last week, those who are part of our church family, you'll get some follow-up questions actually sent to you about 11.45, or I'm sorry, 11.15 today. And so I hope you'll follow up with those. Maybe your K group will be doing that, but great for personal Bible study as well, because there's so much here that we won't even be able to touch on this morning. You know, as you've watched media, and as we spent probably way too much time watching the news and such over these last days, I've called a few people here and there who have said something that they love to say aimed at Christians during times like this, which is, why are y'all wasting your time with prayer? Why are you wasting your time believing in some invisible God? Um, You know, put your faith in science. Science is the only thing that's going to get us out of this. And many people characterize Christians as, as weak. I mean, we need a crutch to get us through these times. But, you know, another thing I'm noticing is that it's, it's, we all have something we go to, our crutch, to get us through these difficult times to find, uh, try to find peace and try to find comfort. And what are those things maybe that you're falling to instead of Christ at this time? Or if you're an unbeliever, what are you looking to to kind of give you this peace during this time? Material possessions, we know how that's turning out for us at this time. Many of us are turning to food. I mean, it's so easy to overeat at home and, and just be indulging ourselves. And it's a false guide, alcohol, drugs, just uh, media, just constant barrage of just more and more media coming at us. And sometimes that can be our, our false guide and try to find peace and meaning and make sense out of life uh, during this time. But the thing with false gods, whether they be a little statue or a, a, a big statue or whether it be something that I just mentioned, false gods always ultimately fall and fail you because they're false. And Jesus is the only one that provides meaning and purpose that will last. The other things may give you some short-term relief, but ultimately they're going to fail you. Only Jesus can give lasting joy and peace. And so we're going to see in our text today that this is definitely not about being unrealistic about the circumstances that we find ourselves in. It's not about being in denial. Oh, this is not really as bad as what it seems to be. We're going to see from our text today that Jesus himself agonized. He dreaded what was in front of him and he visibly struggled with what was ahead but it could not steal his joy it could not steal his joy no matter what he trusted God he trusted God's will regardless of what he had to go through Hebrews 12 2 says about Jesus it says for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of of the throne of God. So for the joy that was ahead of him, he endured the pain. And so we're going to see that our faith, faith in Jesus, gives us a lasting, durable joy that can't be found in anything else. So before we look at our text today, let's pray together. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit will open our hearts and minds to your word. God, pray for those in their living room or in their office or in their bedroom right now who are watching. God, help them to remove distractions God, help them to be aware of the temptation to multitask or to have their mind loosely uh, connected to other things. God, I pray that they will give your word the attention and the respect that it deserves this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we're back in Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 32 today. And they, being Jesus and his disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So let me catch up to speed in case you missed the last few weeks. Jesus and the disciples had just left the upper room following the Last Supper, and they're on their way to the Mount of Olives there in Jerusalem, and Jesus tells his disciples on the way there that you're all going to abandon me. Every one of you. There's 11 of them left. Judas has already taken off. 11 left, and he says, you're all going to abandon me here in a few hours. But Peter, we talked about last week, he insists that there's absolutely no way that he would do that. He's going to die for Jesus. And Jesus tells him that his betrayal will be especially treasonous, that it's going to be worse than everyone else's. But Jesus gave all his men hope. He tells them that they will ultimately not abandon their faith in him, but they will all join back together in Galilee, back home, for this post-resurrection reunion. And so they carry on, they go forward, he makes this prediction, they go forward to Gethsemane, which is a garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives there in Jerusalem, and he takes his eight of his disciples and he leaves them in one location to pray, and then he takes his three closest disciples on to another location, verse 33, he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And so I, I think it's great that Jesus wants his inner circle with him at this time of crisis. That during this time where he's facing something so, so difficult, that he wants his closest allies, his closest buddies to be there nearby and they're going to be within earshot of him so that he's praying, they're praying, and they're watching. And I think one of the big dangers of this quarantine is the idea that we are separated from the body of Christ. I mean, again, I've reiterated over and over again that what we're doing today is not church because church is not a service. It's not a message. Church is the body of Christ who comes together. And I, and I tell you, when I walked in today, I sure missed the handshakes that we normally share. I missed the fellowshipping that sometimes we look at as, tri as trivia, just meaningless stuff, but it, it's significant. It's these little conversations that happen in the lobby, little conversations that happen after the service. Those things build us more like Jesus Christ, that the body of Christ coming together using our gifts and abilities to serve one another and minister to one another. You know, and, and, and I can't wait until the day that we can all return and gather together. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like that it's going to be on Easter Sunday, but it's going to be Easter when we gather here together. It's going to be a joyous celebration when we can come back together again as the body of Christ. And so I, I miss that. And Jesus recognizes the, the, the value of community. He brings his, his disciples and then his, his three closest companions. He brings them together and he says, watch. They're watching practically for Judas and the arresting party to come uh, in a few minutes. But this watching and praying, uh, they were to, 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 to pray to God for strength and pray to God that they won't fall during the hour of temptation. And then Jesus goes on a little further. In verse 34, he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Look what he says, even to death. Even to death. The words that Jesus is using here, they're extremely emotional words. He's overwhelmed with anxiety and anguish. 
and he's uh, distraught. In fact, it says, I feel like I'm dying with the anguish that I'm dealing with. And I can't imagine what the disciples would be thinking at this time. Jesus lets them in on this. He didn't have to do this. He lets the three in on what he's going through. And never had they seen Jesus this way before. The only thing that I could think of in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where Jesus showed emotion to this level was when Lazarus died. But it was nothing like this. Jesus was always in control, total composure, whether it was against demons or storms or satanic temptations or death threats from the religious leaders. He was unflappable in his character. But now we see this extreme emotional intensity, and they see this in their leader. Jesus is greatly troubled. He's overcome with horror. What is going on here? Is Jesus afraid to die? Is Jesus afraid of the pain that he's about to face? There's a book that has been around for centuries, actually written in 1563 was the first copy. It was called The Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it gives accounts of different Christians who have followed Jesus and died for their faith. And in fact, in the 90s, um, the band um, DC Talk came out with a update, an updated version of this, which added some modern stories as well as some of the older stories, and it was called Jesus Freaks. And as I read the accounts in this book, and over the years I've, I've read different things and went back to this again and again, you see tragic accounts of people who gave their life for Jesus, but what you see is this, this great confidence in Jesus in spite of what they were getting ready to go through. I, I, I think of this one story in Romania back in 1990 where this pastor was being beaten and imprisoned and, and, and starving rats were piped into his jail cell so he had to stay awake 24-7 because they were constantly nibbling at him and they could not get him to break to tell who the other believers were in his church community. He would not tell it. And finally, they brought his son in, his 13-year-old son, into the, the room, and they began to beat his son and said, tell us the names of these believers or we're going to keep beating your son. And finally, this half-crazy pastor, in the situation that he was in, he said, stop, I'll tell you what you need to know. And the son looked at his pastor, at his father, the pastor, and he said, dad, don't tell them. Don't embarrass me as your son. Stay true to Jesus. And the son was ultimately beat to death. True story. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus expecting more of his followers than he did of himself? Is that what, he, what he's scared about? Is he scared to die, but he calls us to die boldly and courageously for him? Let's go on and see what's going on in this passage. Verse 35. After he, he'd gone a little further away from the three, he fell on the ground and he prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He prayed, if this, this is possible, this, this hour might pass. So Jesus just flings himself on the ground. But what he's not asking is, God, I can't do this. Let me out. I can't handle the pain and death. That is not what Jesus is doing here. And he's also not saying, God, do you have the power to change this? Because we'll see in a second, God has all power. All things are possible with God. Jesus knew 
it was God's power to provide. It was in God's power to provide another way of salvation if, if he wanted, if he desired. So what is Jesus requesting here? Let's keep reading verse 36. And he said, as he's praying to God, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It wasn't the death on the cross that Jesus was agonizing over. He wasn't asking something of us that he was unwilling to endure himself. What was he asking? He says, remove this cup. It was something so far beyond physical torment and physical pain and death that we can't even put it into words today what Jesus was facing. The pain and the torture of the cross would be like a flick on the arm compared to this cup that Jesus was about to deal with. What was the cup? The cup was a metaphor from the Old Testament for the wrath of God on human evil. The cup was God's wrath being poured out against human evil. So throughout the Old Testament, the image of the cup was about God's wrath and divine justice and judgment being poured out. I love what Tim Keller, pastor, writes. He says, all his life, because of Jesus' eternal dance with his Father and the Spirit, whenever he turned to the Father, the Spirit flooded him with love. What happened visibly and audibly at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration happened invisibly, audibly, every time, inaudibly, every time he prayed. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, he turns to the Father and all he can see before him is wrath, the abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup. So Jesus knew what was before him. He was the Lamb of God preparing to bear the penalty of the sins of all mankind. The wrath of God would be turned loose upon him. The burden and agony would be so great that even as he thinks about this, as he begins to comprehend it, he cannot stand. He falls to the ground under the weight of the expectation of it. And look what he says. He uses a term that's very unique. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. This is a very personal, intimate term that no one during Jesus' day would have used for God. But Jesus says, Abba, Father, this personal, intimate way of speaking to his Father. If, if all things are possible, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was anticipating to the point of literally sorrow and agony to the point of death, even as he thought about what was going to happen on the cross. Because up until this point, Jesus had been in perfect harmony with his father from eternity past up until that time. But as he faced what Isaiah 53 predicted long ago, that Jesus would be pierced for our transgressions, he would be wounded for our healing, the only good and perfect person to ever live his life his substitutionary death in our place was the only way that God had in his will to save us from his wrath. So Jesus drank the cup so that you and I would not have to do that. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so you and I would not have to do so. And then Luke tells us that God actually sends angel, an angel to comfort Jesus 
during this time. And look at verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Not what I want, but what you want, God. Jesus is committing himself to the will of the Father because of God's love for you and I. His willingness to send Jesus to take on the death and the pain and the destruction that we deserved in our place. There's so much here in this passage and so many questions that can come out of this text. And, and as um, online services have their limitations, and we know, as I mentioned, the attention span is often very short. Rather than doing things the way that we always do them, I want to try something a little bit different today. And I ask a couple guys from our church, Brennan Webb and Keller Galpin, to join me up here on stage. And they're going to kind of weigh in on some of this, these things. These are uh, two very, very serious students of the Bible. And they're going to join me here for a brief conversation. I, I think, Brennan, one thing that really comes to mind here, as even as a kid reading this passage, I, I don't get why Jesus, who is God, would be pleading with God to change the will of God. And that really goes into questions that are very deep about, God, about de the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, what all that means. Can you kind of take a stab at kind of briefly explaining uh, what's meant by that? Yeah, briefly. That's a good, that's, that's, a, that's a trick question there. So anyways, a little difficult, um, and obviously there's nothing that I'm going to bring to this today that has not already been said. Um, but, uh, but let's try. We'll give it our best. Um, you know, you really can't get away from this passage without having this question of the humanity of, of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. Um, you know, we, the claim that John makes in, in John 1.1, 1, 1, right, very similar to what we see if you've been following along in this study of uh, Mark, we see, um, you know, as you hear these sermons and as uh, we've been in this what 50 58 weeks yes. now yeah somewhere in there so you, you start to get this this image that hey this this jesus is not like any other person in the world uh there's something different about him yet he's very much like us and uh you know john uh, one of the closest disciples to jesus actually kind of had that same he, he spells that out he says you know john 1 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god boom right there first verse we see the deity of jesus john claims that being that jesus is the word but then when you get down to verse 14 you see all of a sudden that it says and the word became flesh so there's this there's this humanity to it and a lot of us, you know, maybe as Christians, we've already thought about this. We've kind of gotten over that, this, this um, difficult hill uh, of thought. However, some of us maybe have not even asked the question. And so we don't know what the rub is here. What, what do you mean? Like, what, what does it matter that we ask this question? But the, the, the re and the reason why is because a lot of us look at the question of, well, how can Jesus be 100% man and 100% God. How do you take one and one and make that equal one, right? In, in our human hearts and in our minds, we don't have knowledge of all things. We don't know how all things work, 
but we're going to use the tools that we have at our disposal. And one of those tools is that we're going to try to quantify this thing. How do I quantify that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God? And that's where the rub is. That's where the tension, if I can use that term, there's this, there's this pull between the two sides. And the good thing is we're not alone in that. Uh, we have a whole history of believers and the church who have been asking that question for millennia, thousands of years. And there's a lot of good answers out there. So I'll, I'm not going to get into it, uh, into the details of that. You can definitely go research that. I'll drop a few names there. You'll want to look at the Council of Nicaea. You'll want to look at the, um, the Council of Chalcedon, uh, the Council of Ephesus. There you go. Name drop. Go Wikipedia. Go look in your, uh, you know, biblical thesaurus, whatever, uh, thesaurus dictionary. Uh, go look at those things. However, for the purpose of this discussion, I think we can, we don't have to be left with the tension of this. That question of what is the humanity, what is the nature of Jesus' humanity, and what is the nature of his deity. Basically, what, when we read scripture, scripture never cuts the tension. We don't see that. At least I don't see that. And there are many believers before me who have explained that much better than I possibly could here in this brief moment. And so there is this point in which our minds have to kind of say, okay, I have to accept this, that there's this mystery to this person of who Jesus is as well as this God, Jesus. However, sometimes that can sit as a block, kind of a little bit of a blockade to worship. Maybe for those who are still struggling to get over this hill, this theological hill, this hill of the mind and thought, that how do I worship this Jesus if I can't have this answered? That he is both God, he's fully God, and he is fully man, and he is fully worthy of worship. How do we answer that? And all I can do is give an illustration, okay? So if you'll allow me this one. And, and I, need, I need everybody to understand, at least my assumption is the illustrations do break down at some point. You can't thread this out, so don't go too far with it. But then how do we reconcile these things in our heart to where we can bring ourselves to worship even though the gears of our mind are kind of just grinding on this question? And I think it's helpful to actually use a biblical, a biblical illustration uh, or an image that's a reality for us as believers. And if you, you know, if you look in Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, Paul is talking about walking by the Spirit as Christians. And when he gets to what are the attributes of this Spirit, he says you can also be like the Spirit because the Spirit is dwelling within you. Walk in obedience to the Spirit of God. And he lays out what those attributes are. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All of these, these gifts of the Spirit that we are called to work out. But there's a very interesting phrase at the end that makes us, that actually is a calling to be in a sense, have in, within ourselves this expression of divinity 
that we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, empowering us, if you look at it, it says, against these things, there is no law. As, as Christians, we are called to this unlimited, infinite attribute of God. Well, let's take this for example, and, and let's bring it home to everyday life. Um, and I'll use this illustration of how, how do we get, you know, the, the, the humanity of, how can our hearts release this tension at least, even though our minds may not understand it? And how do we bring ourselves back to worship? I'll say it like this. Imagine you're standing in front of, you know, your, your child, your son or daughter, and you look at them and you say, I love you with all of my heart. But your other son or daughter is sitting at the kitchen table and they go, whoa, mommy, daddy, how, what do you mean? You just told me yesterday that you love me with all of your heart or all of your heart. How, how can that be? How can you love him as much as you love me? Now, as parents, we're kind of stuck in a quandary at that point. How do you explain to your five or six-year-old child how you can unlimited, infinitely love one child and also at the same time infinitely love and so the other child? And so the point there is I'm, I'm just trying to give an illustration that will help our hearts at least to understand that it's very difficult for us. In fact, it's the Bible calls it a mystery. This is the mystery of the gospel, that there is somehow this 100% God in the flesh, yet 100% man, Jesus who can, um, he, he, can he knows our temptations. He knows what we feel. He has felt pain. He has felt hunger. But yet, at the same time, he knows all things. He wow. is infinite in his, in his, in his uh, abilities, and he's worthy of worship. So that's how I kind of go about answering that. Well, that, and we know we could talk for days on this. And mm-hmm. I, I want to bring in Keller, the practical side of this, because, uh, you know, if Jesus is pleading with God to change the will of God, I mean, we really learn a lot about prayer in this passage as well because we see with Jesus' uh, willingness to limit his divine attributes at some level um, in this, uh, we learn a great deal about how we should approach prayer. What has God taught you as you've looked at this uh, about prayer, and how has that changed your prayer life, and, and, and how does it relate to the current situation we're in? Yeah, so this has probably been the most influential uh, verse in Scripture for how I approach prayer. Um, we all have our supplications that we bring to God in prayer, that our our desires, whether they may be, we, we pray and hope that they're the right desires, but sometimes we don't know. Do I, should I do this? Should I do that? I'm, I'm suffering here and I don't want to suffer, but that's sometimes in that suffering, that's our flesh not wanting to deal with that, when the reality is that God has something so much more for us to grow in from that suffering. So in my prayer life, um, this this verse always comes back. I want, my, my flesh wants God to take that cup from me, and that I can in no way relate to the, the depth of the wrath of God, the cup that Jesus was about to, um, have, to have to drink. But I want him to take this, this hour from me, for this pain from me, but I always, I'm always prompted by the Spirit, nevertheless, thy will be done. Um, so in every situation in our lives, um, 
that may be difficult, whatever it may be, remind yourselves of this verse that Jesus himself, God in the flesh, came and said, I don't know if I can deal with this, but you know what? I want what you want more. I want your will to be done more than my flesh, him and his flesh at that time, that will that he wanted to not, I don't know if I can deal with this. The, the divine aspect of him said, but this is what I will. And, um, you know, there was a plan. So we have to understand there is a plan in every situation in our lives at work. And what our responsibility to do is, is to get out of the way, right? get our flesh out of the way and say, thy will be done. What will you have me do with it? And uh, lots of times that's, that's requires even more prayer in and of itself and, and seeking the scriptures. Yeah. And Keller, you know, it's interesting you say that because, um, you know, one of the, one of the greatest principles that I think you can get out of this is we see that submissiveness, that obedience, that the flesh of Jesus is just crying out, God, what, is there a way out? But yet at the same time, he knows what's been revealed to him. In fact, he even taught his disciples right before this, and we've seen that through John's preaching, that coming up on this, that, uh, that there's, he told his disciples exactly what was going to happen. And so he knew what was going to happen, but yet he still walked in truth and obedience to that. And I think I, it's just, it is, it's a humbling thing, right? that we have to come back and say, God, not my will, but your will be done. Yeah, it's really humble. Yeah, you know, I think about us all, uh, you know, we're starting to be more and more impacted by what's going on in the world around us. And while we know there are people who are legitimately dying over this, people who um, are really, really uh, losing family members, it's truly happening. And we haven't fully felt that here. And hopefully, you know, Lord willing, we won't. But at the same time, we do have to keep in mind that um, it's God's will that we desire, and we are on a broken planet. Sin and death came into the world through Adam, and Jesus Christ brings hope that lasts forever, not just temporary. And, you know, if there's anything that I can give you from this passage and through the follow-up questions as you think about those today is so many people want to say, you know, there's no way God could have any part in this. Uh, whatsoever and and they try to nuance out and, and argue out and there's a lot of discussion and debates on you know is God angry is God a God of wrath and you know they say that God of the New Testament is a God of love and that is absolutely true God is love but God is also a God of justice and there, there's this passive um, sort of wrath that happens on this broken earth and, and these bad things that take place are a result ultimately of that sin and God's passive wrath that happens. And, and, and the same verse that many people want to go to and say, no, God's just about love. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Absolutely 100% true. But in that same conversation he's having with this guy named Nicodemus down in verse 36, he says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains, remains upon him. And you see, if you have not turned to Jesus in faith, God's wrath remains upon you. And that wrath is going to be vindicated one way or the other. It's either through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross or spending forever in hell as a result of your sin. See, God is holy and righteous, and it's not unfair 
when we understand the character and the nature of God and the extent of his holiness, we can start to grasp a little bit of why we're deserving. And so God is seeking after you. The wrong question maybe to be asking is, is God causing this to happen? The right question to be asking is, what do I need to do in response to God because this is happening? And so I encourage you to see God is seeking after you. God is trying to get your attention. And the things that we hold up as gods and the things that we hold up as more important than him, the things that we value more important, God is breaking those down through the circumstances and situations that are happening around us. And we see that this life is just a sliver of time. Eternity is forever and ever and ever and ever. I don't want to spend my best in this life and then lose out on the best, which is the next life to come. Respond to Jesus. Jesus asks you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that Christ God has raised Christ from the dead, and you will be saved. That's the promises of Scripture. Jesus took the wrath, so you don't have to. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word that gives us truth, that helps us to navigate these times and to see that this is not about us, it's about you. And it's about your purposes, it's your story. And God, I thank you for the wake-up call that many of us have received during this time to see that oftentimes the things that we exalt, maybe not in the things we say as being gods, but the way that we live our life, the things we spend our time and our energy and our money on, those things are really the things that we worship. And you've stripped those away. And you've put us at this place of humility and brokenness. And what, what an opportunity it is for us and for our church community and our Bainbridge community and our nation and the world as a whole to fall at your feet and worship you because we will do that one day. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. God, I pray that people who have not done that will do that today before they're forced to do that. At the end of time, at the end of this age, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.